On November 2, 2017, British and Israeli leaders met at a grand banquet in the majestic Lancaster House mansion in London. The occasion was the 100th anniversary of a letter sent on November 2, 1917, during the First World War. The letter was penned by Lord Arthur James Balfour, then British Foreign Secretary, and sent to Lord Lionel Rothschild, British financier and one of the leaders of the Jewish community in Great Britain. The letter read, Foreign Office, November 2, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I would be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. In December of 1917, Lord Rothschild had opportunity to speak to a gathering of 3,000 British Jews in London. In his speech, he stated, We are met on the most momentous occasion in the history of Judaism for the last 1,800 years. For the first time since the dispersion, the Jewish people have received their proper status by a declaration of one of the great powers. The declaration was, however, not without its critics at home or abroad. In fact, among a good number of the British aristocracy and military, it was very unpopular. And it was indeed a risk for the government of Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Why was this declaration made when it was? And why is it so important? Some even say it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Stay tuned for the remarkable story behind a little document that changed the world. The Israelite nation had been established in the region known biblically as Canaan in the 14th century BC. By 1000 BC, under King Solomon, they had become the dominant power in the Middle East. However, subsequent to Solomon's death, the nation was torn apart by civil war, with 10 of the 12 tribes forming the separate Kingdom of Israel in the northern sectors of the country, and the remaining two tribes forming the nation of Judah, after which the latter were historically known as Jews. They became two distinct nations, often in conflict with one another. In fact, the first time the word Jews is mentioned in the King James Bible is in 2 Kings 16, verse 6, when they are at war with Israel. The northern kingdom was eventually destroyed and taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 721 BC, while the southern kingdom of Judah survived until destroyed by the Babylonian Empire between 605 to 586 BC. Seventy years after falling to the Babylonians, 
the Persian Emperor Cyrus the Great was moved to re-establish a Jewish state centered around Jerusalem. With the first exiles returning in 537 BC, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Over the years, exiles rebuilt Judah and Jerusalem, despite times of frequent threat of enemies and foreign invasion. Five centuries later, Judah was under the rule of Herod the Great, who himself was a vassal of the Roman Empire. Herod had Jerusalem reconstructed into one of the most beautiful cities on earth, with the Great Temple as a centerpiece. Initially, Roman rule was relatively benevolent. However, subsequent rulers interfered with Jewish religious life, eventually bringing about the revolt of AD 66 to 70, in which Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. A second, more serious revolt occurred in AD 135. The loss of this war brought about a general dispersion over time of the Jews from their ancient homeland, although some small numbers always remained in the Galilee. The Jewish diaspora eventually saw Jews spread all over the Mediterranean basin, all around the Black Sea, and throughout Europe. In many areas of Europe, conditions varied with time. Jews lived peacefully for many years, only to be suddenly caught up in a mood of Jewish persecution. England from the 1200s to 1829 was hostile to Jews, but after 1829 developed a reputation for religious tolerance, making England a destination for Jewish immigration. Even in this more tolerant climate, the 1917 action of the British cabinet to approve the brief 67-word statement called the Balfour Declaration was a surprise to many. It would eventually change the whole complexion of the Middle East and for the first time in nearly two millennia provide a hope that the Jewish people would once again have a national home. Reacting against waves of anti-Semitism, the Zionist movement was founded and in 1887 the first group of early Zionists moved to Israel which was then ruled by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was an ally of Germany in World War I bringing Britain into conflict with an empire that controlled not only present-day Turkey and Israel, but most of the Arab Middle East. Among British, French, and Russian leadership, there was also some thought that promising a homeland for the Jews would result in ensuring Jewish support for the war against Germany. This was also the sentiment in the government of the United States. In the early part of the century, a number of potential areas had been proposed for such a Jewish homeland. These ranged from locations in Argentina, Uganda, the Sinai, Siberia, Belarus, Ukraine, Crimea, Guyana, and Cyprus. But the Zionists opposed them all. When asked why these other places were not acceptable, Weissman retorted, That is like my asking you why you drove 20 miles to visit your mother last Sunday when there are so many old ladies living on your street. It is interesting to note that pressure was exerted in cabinet for the wording of the original draft to be altered to ensure it did not commit to a nation state for the Jews, but rather a homeland. It was thought that this phrase would be more palatable to the Arabs. Even so, the cabinet statement was enough to make Jews around the world believe that the dream of going home after two millennia was within reach. 
The war ended in 1918, leaving Britain in control of much of the former Ottoman Empire. Following the intentions of the Balfour Declaration and the 1919 Paris and San Remo Peace Conference agreements, the newly created League of Nations formally approved by an affirmative vote of its 51 members a legal mandate for Britain to govern the territory to be known as Palestine in 1922. As mentioned previously, certain segments of the British population were strongly opposed to the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine from its very beginning. After the peace conference, Balfour was replaced as Foreign Secretary by Lord Curzon, who opposed the mandate. As well, subversive elements within the British military government in Palestine helped ferment anti-Jewish riots as early as 1920. Leading British newspapers ran campaigns against the mandate. Opposition became so severe that the mandate for a Jewish homeland was essentially ended at least twice once by a Labour government after the 1929 Arab riots, and then by the Chamberlain appeasement-oriented national government after the 1936-39 Arab revolt, and all of this even before World War II began. During this period, goodwill between the highly pro-British leaders of the Zionists and Great Britain was severely tested. When the British side split on the issue, and a good portion of the aristocracy expressed anti-Semitic views, the Jews needed a champion. Although famous today for other reasons, this new champion would be a powerful force in bringing the Jewish state to a reality and opening the door for a key prophecy to be fulfilled. In the next portion of this program, we will identify the man without whom the modern state of Israel may well not exist today. Before we come back, Take the time to call the number which will be shown on your screen momentarily and order your free copy of The Future of Jerusalem. This DVD contains three Tomorrow's World telecasts, including this one, which will outline the past, present, and future for this important city. Let me tell you how you can get this exciting DVD free. Just dial the number on your screen and ask for The Future of Jerusalem. You can also order online at TWCanada.org. The city of Jerusalem has endured such tragedy and suffering throughout history. You can know what God has in store for this city and what its future means for you. So call us now or visit us online to get your free copy. If you missed our contact information this time, I will give it again later in the program. In the first part of our program, we looked at the background and conditions faced by the Jewish diaspora that led up to the game-changing declaration of the British cabinet in 1917 known as the Balfour Declaration. Now we shall examine some of the leading forces that made this happen and the real motivation, as well as revealing the role of a key player who is not normally associated with the founding of the State of Israel. I had the opportunity to discuss the role of this key player with Dr. Charles Moore a former instructor at the University of Saskatchewan who has studied this particular period and issue very intensely. He has lectured numerous groups on the forces at play during this time, including the impact of the Balfour Declaration. Here is a portion of that discussion. Welcome, Dr. Moore. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have the opportunity. 
when it comes to the matter of the establishment of the modern state of Israel, we know that there were at the time in Britain forces that were strongly supportive of the establishment of a homeland for the Jews. There were also forces that were strongly opposed. Uh, you mentioned to me earlier the name of an important player who most people don't realize was associated with the Balfour Declaration. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so well that man of course is the man usually credited with victory in World War II, the Allied victory, and of course it was Winston Churchill. Uh, in 1922, then Prime Minister Lloyd George asked Mr. Churchill to put through the House of Commons backing for the acceptance of the League of Nations mandate over Palestine. Of course, this was based on the Balfour Declaration. And this came on the heels of a defeat in the House of Lords, a two to one defeat, I might add, uh, in spite of author Arthur Balfour's speech at, in support. So Churchill was able to gain a victory of almost 300 to 30, a 10 to 1 ratio, to support this uh, act which led to the establishment of the state of, of Israel. I seem to recall also that there were some serious discussions at the time that the Palestinian mandate might become a self-governing dominion in the British Empire, similar to Canada, Australia, etc. Uh, in your studied opinion, did Balfour, uh, Churchill, and even the British cabinet in 1917 envisage a Jewish state or a homeland that would be under the auspices of the British Empire? Well, Heim Weizmann, the leader of the Zionist, you know, chose Britain as a mentor because he felt he wanted this, this close relationship with probably the leading nation on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and he loved Britain. Uh, the various people, you've, others you've mentioned, hoped for a continued British presence in that land and eventually, if you thought about it, a, probably some kind of status in the Commonwealth not, would not have been beyond, beyond doubt. Uh, Colonel uh, Josiah Wedgwood, a bit of a maverick MP, almost 40-year MP, came up with the idea of a seventh dominion in the late 1920s. He saw Palestine becoming equal, equal status with Australia, New Zealand, Canada uh, as a self-governing dominion within the British Empire. Some feel the Balfour Declaration and the subsequent British Mandate was actually a betrayal of the Arab population. Uh, was it a betrayal or were the results of the policy not fully envisaged at the time? Well, I don't think it was a, a betrayal. We could look at it from a couple of standpoints. One very important one was the context of the time, that post-World I era, when ethnic groups were given self-determination according to Woodrow Wilson's ideas. Uh, these great empires were being broken into ethnic components and the Ottoman Empire was one of them because it was Turkish and Arab, but it was more complicated than that. As some, you know, some people might not realize the whole Levant coast, you know, where present-day Israel, Lebanon, Syria are located today was then and still is a multi-ethnic area and has a number of states in it. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Palestine would be under uh, 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 an independent Arab Muslim nations because it was of a mixed population. And that's a very important point. And it was considered by the Allies and the whole 51 members of the League of Nations and they saw the Jewish situation as a special case because they did not have a land and their natural homeland was in what they called Palestine.
So in your expert opinion, would the state of Israel exist today if it had not been for the Balfour Declaration? It's highly unlikely that such a situation would have existed given all the problems. The Balfour Declaration was the inspiration and moral foundation for the League of Nations legal documents that provided the guidance, almost a constitution, for Britain to follow in, and, and, in developing a state. So highly unlikely it would have happened. Thank you very much, Dr. Moore, for sharing your expert opinion with us today on a topic that is as, very, as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. So thank you. We'll be back in just a moment to examine one remaining motivation behind the Balfour Declaration, which is of vital importance to everyone watching this program. To request your free copy, call the number displayed on the screen and ask for The Future of Jerusalem. You can also order online at TWCanada.org. Have you ever asked where is the world headed, or what does the future hold for me? We answer these questions and more in our magazine, Tomorrow's World. It is also yours free of charge. Call us right now or visit us online to get your free DVD, The Future of Jerusalem, and Tomorrow's World magazine. Enjoy the rest of the program. So far in today's program, we have examined much of the context for the Balfour Declaration, including the two millennia of struggle and persecution faced by Jewish peoples. Dr. Charles Moore highlighted for us the role Winston Churchill played in getting the Declaration through, and the importance of this historic Declaration. Now let us look at one more motivation behind the Balfour Declaration and what it means for your future. Speaking of the Balfour Declaration, George Alderman, writing in the Jewish Chronicle, makes a remarkable statement. The Balfour Declaration was born out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian who believed that the Almighty had chosen him to be an instrument of the divine will, the purpose of which was to restore the Jews to their ancient homeland, perhaps as a precursor to the second coming of the Messiah. The Declaration was thus intended to assist in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. This appealed to Prime Minister Lloyd George, believing in the prophecies of the Bible he knew inside out. So of what prophecies was Balfour thinking? There are a great many prophetic statements in the Bible that speak of an eventual return of all Israel to this ancient land, such as Amos chapter 9. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the way cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This and most other prophecies, however, refer to all Israel, not just the tribes associated with Judah or the Jews. This great return of all the Israelite peoples has not yet occurred. It will not happen until the return of the promised Messiah, as other scriptures show. There are, however, prophecies that tell us clearly that the Jews of the tribe of Judah will be living in the land of Israel prior to the coming of the Messiah. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. Who shall rouse him? This is speaking of Judah, the Jews, as a settled and powerful force at the time of the end. This was not the case for two millennia prior to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. History has shown the accuracy of this promise. As the State of Israel has been attacked and harassed by forces far superior to its own and has crushed its enemies in 1948, 1956, 1967, and 1973, and has held them at bay ever since. This prophecy required Judah to be back in his homeland prior to the time of the end. Then there is the specific prophecy that in the days just before the coming of the Messiah, a great power will attack Jerusalem, and one of its acts will be to suspend the sacrifices being carried out at that location. Even today, Jews do not sacrifice on the Temple Mount, as currently the holy sites are under Muslim administration. Any move to change that would only be possible if the religious Jews forcibly took control of those areas. In the near future, this is what will happen. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is speaking of the time when a great and evil power from the north will attack, conquer the Middle East, and stop the sacrifices. At the very end, this force breaks a treaty and assaults the Jewish state in which the sacrifices have been restored for three and one-half years. Thus we see that prior to the return of Christ, Jews must be firmly in control of the land around Jerusalem and much of the land of Canaan and be a powerful force strong enough to cause enemies to fear to attack them. This could not have happened at any time between A.D. 70 and 1948 until the return of the Jews to the area and the establishment of a Jewish nation. Truly, several factors had to be in play to make this a reality, but none of it would have happened without the courageous act of the British cabinet in 1917 that led to the Balfour Declaration. While there were certainly many in Britain who were quite anti-Jewish at the time, there was also a large body of people who supported the Jews. In part, that support was fed by a popular belief that had been flourishing in Britain for nearly two centuries. This belief was firmly held by no less a person than Queen Victoria. On the occasion of her acceptance as patron of the Palestine Exploration Fund in 1865, the Archbishop of York made the following comment in her presence. This country of Palestine belongs to you and to me. It is essentially ours. It was given to the Father of Israel in the words, Walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. We mean to walk through Palestine in the length and in the breadth of it, because that land has been given unto us. It is the land from which comes the news of our redemption. It is the land towards which we turn, as the fountain of all our hopes. It is the land to which we may look 
with as true a patriotism as we do to this dear old England which we love so much. Victoria believed fervently that the English-speaking peoples were the descendants of the Israelite tribe of Joseph, and thus the Jews were brothers. Therefore the land of Israel belonged to them all. Many leading politicians of the day also held this position, one that can be demonstrated factually and historically. Hence the will of Lord Balfour and Prime Minister Lloyd George, along with men like Winston Churchill, supported this simple but world-changing declaration. It was a declaration that brought about the fulfillment of several ancient prophecies of the Bible. The Balfour Declaration was nothing less than an instrument to bring about a prophetic condition that would begin to prepare the world for the time of the end, a time that will soon be upon us. To learn more about the future events that, while centered around Jerusalem, will affect you and your family, call us to receive your free DVD, The Future of Jerusalem. Thank you for showing interest in this history and future of this important city. Please stay tuned for tomorrow's World Answers and be sure to write, call, or email for today's special offer. Join us next week as Gerald Weston, Michael Haycoop, and I bring you more information about today's issues and the glorious hope of tomorrow's world. To learn more about today's topic, visit TWCanada.org. You can also order by calling us at 1-866-784-7895 or by writing to us at Tomorrow's World, P.O. Box 409, Mississauga, Ontario, L5M0P6. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Answers, where we answer your questions straight from the Bible. Carl from Gatineau, Quebec wrote us asking, According to the Bible, are we allowed to be cremated? While the most frequent biblical example provided for us is that of burial, we can read several instances of righteous individuals whose bodies were dealt with in different manners after death. In short, the Bible teaches that the manner of a person's burial is not of great importance. The closest instance to cremation found in the Bible relates to the death of King David's closest friend, Jonathan. We remember that Jonathan was one of Saul's sons and is spoken of very highly in Scripture. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the bodies of Saul and the bodies of his sons, Jonathan included, from the wall of Beth Sham. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. The men of Jabesh-Gilead retrieved the bodies, burned away any flesh that had been remaining, and buried what was left. Sometimes this question is asked as an individual wonders if God is able to resurrect a body which has been completely destroyed by fire. It is important to remember that there have been countless martyrs throughout the centuries whose bodies were disposed of in unspeakable ways. Many were even burned at the stake. This will not prevent God from resurrecting them at the time of Christ's return. Those lost at sea will also be raised according to Revelation 20 and verse 13. Jesus even spoke of a future resurrection for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities which were destroyed by fire. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Where cremation can become a problem is if it is viewed as a method of releasing the spirit or affecting the individual's consciousness in any way. Solomon wrote that, 
there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. If cremation is being used solely for the purpose of disposing the body, then there is no biblical instruction forbidding it. To submit a question for the show, email us at twanswers at tomorrowsworld.org. Be sure to watch us online at twcanada.org or by searching Tomorrow's World Answers on YouTube. At our website, you can also watch this and many more Tomorrow's World programs. Call 1-866-784-7895. Write or visit us online today. This program is a production of The Living Church of God.